lesson for justification. If you have your scriptures, please turn them to the Romans, uh, the epistle to the Romans. This is a time where uh, our brother Art Mink is usually uh, providing instruction, and he is now uh, preaching in another location, and we wish him uh, well and hope that uh, the Lord will be with him and his message. <clears throat> I'd like to read the scripture from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We'll be considering that today for our study hour. Uh, the theme of the lesson will be justification. I'll be reading from the ESV. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a very revealing passage of scripture, and I would like to say something in, as an introduction to my introduction, and that is this. In all of the New Testament, when we look at the Gospels and we look at the, uh, the Acts according to the Gospel, which is a history, and then we look at the epistles, the Pauline epistles, those letters written by Paul, and the general epistles, epistles written by other apostles. And in the Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible, which is an apocalyptic piece of literature by, by John. Of all the New Testament, the theology book of the New Testament is the book of Romans. The other epistles address issues and problems. The Gospels teach us about the life of Christ and the... Um, how the gospel was actually accomplished through his life and through his death. The history in the book of Acts, see how these things were propagated in the church and so on. But when it comes to learning the doctrines of the scriptures, you cannot beat the book of Romans. You master the book of Romans and you'll have New Testament theology. Today, I want to consider justification. Sinners are justified by their guilt, from their guilt, by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, we've used words that may be confusing to some. The idea of imputation, that's a big word. You'll find it in theology books. You'll find it uh, sometimes in uh, accounting classes and so on. If you talk to your banker, they might understand what imputing is all about. But it has to do with accrediting something to someone. You can have... Uh, finances to where you have uh, funds in one account, you can take remove that funds, put it into another account, and they've been imputed there. And you can even give your money to someone else, and you can impute your money into someone else's account. But this use of the word is going to be used in a legal context. A legal context. And so I want you to remember that. I am going to read to you some scriptures concerning um, justification. But to do that, I want to prepare you a little bit. 
How many remember what happened to the person by the name of Job? How he suffered many things. I think some of you can even identify with him. Uh, the person of Job, after enduring these things, were met by friends. And of course, I believe they were friends, but sometimes friends have a way of, of talking to you that sometimes, you know, they can be rough. Job had a friend by the name of uh, uh, Bildad. And after discussing many things, Bildad came back to Job and he, and he said this, How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean? That is it, that who is born of a woman. And so what Bildad was saying to Job, Look, I know you're suffering. And I know that you're enduring a lot of things. But the fact of the matter is, is that, and he goes on to say things like this, even the sun and the moon and the stars cannot, uh, uh, cannot be justified in the sight of God. None of us can be justified. So how can this happen? So he's saying it like this. This is a really good question, though. He's saying it to Job. You need to own up to the sin that you have and the idea that you deserve this suffering. And God is not doing this unjustly. We know that God is not unjust in letting you suffer. Well, we have learned other things about Job, haven't we? Because Bildad didn't know all the details. And even in Scripture, when the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples, he's, you know, when he was asked, the Lord was asked, who did sin that this man was born blind? Uh, was it he or was it his parents? And the Lord gave a response that was surprising to them, but not surprising to Job, I would think, that this man was suffering for the glory of God. Now, you may think, well, why is, you know, why am I dwelling on this before I'm teaching on justification? But it has to do with the question. It's a good question. How then can man be justified with God? It is an excellent question. Because the book of Romans provides the answer to that question. How in the world can sinners be justified? Because in my life experience, I've used this word several times, you know, I mean, on a consistent basis, where if I'm purchasing something for my management and I have to prove to the government that it's worthy to be purchased, I have to fill out a form that has at the top of it justification. And what that means is, do you have good reasons for spending our money? Do you have sufficient reason? Do you have an excuse to take money and to buy this item. It, it, it's just justification. Now that's one way that it's used. But in a court of law, a person can only be justified if they are innocent. You see, when a person is accused of a crime, they will stand before the judge. And then a judge will ask, that, ask the person, are you guilty or not guilty? How do you plead? And of course, if the person pleads not guilty, then he says, let's look at the evidence and see if your plea is justified. And if it is, the man will be found innocent of the crime, and then he has been justified of the charges. Now, that can only happen if the man is innocent. A person can only be justified if they are innocent. But you see, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that says this. 
it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he, that is God, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is going to remain just and then justify the sinner. Let me tell you something about justifying sinners. We cannot do that. If we justified a sinner, that would be a crime. To actually prove or to try to prove that, an, that a guilty man is innocent is a crime. And yet God is not guilty of sin. He is just and the justifier of the sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. So that's what makes this doctrine so amazing. So amazing. Now, the other point I want to make in my small introduction is this. What a good question that is, isn't it? How can a man be just with God? But you know who is not asking that question? I'll tell you. Who, who, just think about it. Who is not asking that question? The people who need to understand it. They're the ones that don't care. They were asked questions like this. Where they always preface their question with a statement. The Christians I know are hypocrites. Why should I follow a God who approves these type of worshipers? See, they're not asking, how can a sinner be justified before God? Or, how can I be justified before God? They're asking, why should I follow this God who has worshipers like them? They may even say, God allows evil and suffering and has done nothing to fix it. Why should I give this God my respect and honor? Instead of asking, here I am. I'm a sinner. I know that I've been wrong. And God is the just God who judges people. And yet they're not asking, how then can anyone be just in the sight of God? You see, the world needs to ask this question. But we are giving them an answer they don't want. They're not asking. But we are called to give them the answer after. Then I went, well, I, that's not true. We need to give them the answer at all times. But we have to make sure that they understand that God's wrath abides on them so that they have a need of Christ. This question is only asked by a person who has a need of Christ. They may also say something like this. I have looked everywhere. Why is God hiding? Why doesn't God simply just show up and end this debate of whether he even exists? That's the question the world has instead of the right question. And so before I begin properly, I want you to make sure that you're asking the right question. I want you to make sure that this can only be of value to you if you have a need for Christ. If you do not have a need for Christ, other questions will push that one out. Instead of you being in front of the judge, you will have God in front of you and you'll be the judge. And that's a problem that the world has. So let's make sure that we check ourselves, that we understand that we all have a need for a Savior. We all have a need for Christ because we need to be forgiven because we are guilty. And therefore, the very fact that God says that he can remain just and also justify the sinner is such good news that it just it just gives us joy that we cannot even express. But the joy cannot exist 
without someone who has a heart that says, I need a Savior. Now, I want you to think two ways this morning. I want you to be able to think legally, but I also want you to think in a more heart-based way. A legal-based way and a heart-based way. And we have to keep these a little bit separate, but they work like this together. Okay? I want you to be able to say to yourself, I have a legal um, type of relationship with God, the judge. I am a guilty defendant. He is a righteous judge. And there is a legal transaction going on, and there is a legal relationship. But on the other hand, there's also a heart-based relationship. There is within us the attitude, the desires to do wrong, and that must be fixed. That's going to be called sanctification. The legal part is going to be called justification. And we need to keep them separate, but also know how they dovetail together. Because one uses the other. Sanctification, which is the work of God within the heart, uses the truth to convince the heart and to convict the heart and the power of the Holy Spirit to give life to a hating heart that hates God to use the truth, which is legally based, which is factually based. It is reasoned out. We use our minds. It helps the heart to believe. It enables the heart to rest upon truth. And these are the means of grace. To believe the truth. To enable the heart to be regenerate and to be saved. So, these two are separate things. So, let's begin with this. In my, I'm, uh, I'm accustomed to going verse by verse, and so that's what I'll be doing today. Verse number 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, is repeated over and over again in the book of Romans. In this section, several times. But the first time it's mentioned in this is in chapter number 1. And let me read the verse to you. I'm going to read two verses to you from chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For therein, now when it says for therein, it's referring to the gospel. For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God. Now, does that just mean that we just know that God is good, that God is righteous? I don't believe that. I believe that it's trying to tell the reader that the righteousness of God that must be had by the person to stand before a judge is now going to be revealed in the gospel. You see, the law of God in the covenant between Adam and Moses, which says, do and you live. If you are perfect, you will walk in the presence of God. But in that covenant, in that contract, in that legal type of relationship that we have, if we do not do that, then the power of the law condemns us. Sin gains its strength from the law because sin kills. How does sin kill? Because the law says the man that sins against God is going to die. And so 
the righteousness that is needed by the sinner to actually justify him can only come from God because it cannot come from the sinner because he does not have it. So we see here that man as a sinner requires a savior and that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, this faith to faith, I've read several people on it, and it has, you know, it can be taken in several different ways, but I like to take it this way. Because it says that this is being told to us by the law and the prophets. They have given witness to it. And now we have Christ and the apostles telling us what it is. And so it's the faith that was shown to us in types and shadows to the faith that is now given to us in detail and in truth that is obviously true. And so from one faith, like Abraham had faith, he was a friend of God, and he was saved. He was saved by the imputed righteousness, righteousness even though he may not have had all the details. But we now, it has been revealed from heaven to give us an understanding, an understanding in our minds that we can reason to aid the heart, to love God, and to receive and embrace our forgiveness. And so that is the righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith. Faith, because the just shall live by this faith. The just. The just. You know, and so the idea of being the just, I could say it this way, the innocent, the one without sin. But are we? We are not. But we can be accounted as righteous. We can be considered and declared righteous by the judge through the gospel, because the righteousness that is of Christ can be imputed to you. And that is the essence of justification. Let's go on and consider this. The Old Testament law teaches us about the law of God. It tells us that when men are to be judges over others, that they are not to be taken, uh, not to take bribes. In other words, they cannot pervert justice. They should always know that when the evidence says a man is guilty, they must be found guilty and not take a bribe and say he's innocent when he's not. And so the Lord was very clear that judges need to say the innocent shall be exonerated. They shall be justified of the accusations and the guilty shall not be justified. They shall be found guilty. That's what a judge is supposed to do. And yet we have something marvelous going on when God is just and he is the justifier of the ungodly. So what we're looking at here is a phrase in this sentence that says, Now is the righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. You see that phrase? How can a man find righteousness apart from the law? Because they're under a covenant that says, by this law, you shall live. If you break this law, you die. But now your righteousness is apart from the law. It cannot be from the law. If you were perfect, the law could provide you that. And there was one, Jesus Christ, who was exonerated of all the false charges against him. He proved he was innocent. He was even, even raised from the dead that God was his witness, his Father raised him from the dead by the Spirit of holiness, 
and it proved that he was innocent, and he was justified before God and all men that all accusations were, uh, were, were false. However, having earned that righteousness, all those in Christ get to receive that, and that is imputed to them, and all in Christ are now declared legally just and justified. That is a legal declaration, a legal declaration. We don't have to feel anything about it. Now, we do feel something about it, don't we? You see, the feeling comes in when the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit takes the truth and lets you embrace and understand and change the heart. But it doesn't change the unalterable truth that this is a legal uh, event, a legal event. And so this is done apart from the law of Moses, apart from the covenant that, that there is with Adam, God with Adam. It's done apart from that. And so if it's apart from that, what is it? What is it? It is actually Christ fulfilling it for us. We have a covenant with with God through Christ. You see, the covenant made with Adam and with Moses, that does us no good except to condemn us. The law in that covenant is still as beautiful and as um, enlightening and as uh, revealing of the true nature and beauty of God as it ever was. However, that law is a legal requirement that if we cannot keep, that law kills us. And death has the power and strength of that law. Now, with Christ completing that covenant, he has done away with that agreement. And there is a New Testament. The word testament meaning covenant. There is a new covenant that is called the everlasting covenant that the Father has with the Son. All that the Father giveth me, I will save, I will keep. I will lose none of them. And all that Christ does in this covenant, we receive because we are in Christ. Because the seed, it belongs to Christ. Just as all the seed of Adam are condemned, all the seed of Christ are justified. That's how imputation works. Now, that's kind of original sin in a nutshell, in case you didn't know. I just talked to you about original sin without you even knowing it. Perhaps I shouldn't have told you. You might feel like, oh, I'm pretty smart now. But just remember, this covenant does not do away with the law, even though the covenant has been finished by Christ. Why? Because the covenant only contains the law. You see, the covenant says, this is the law of God, and you must complete all of it. But when Christ completed it, the covenant is done away with, but it doesn't do away with the law that's included in it. You see, the law isn't dependent to be here just because of a covenant. The law has always been part of the character and nature of our God. He is holy. And so, we need to keep that in mind. Let's go to the next verse. Verse, of, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe 
for there is no distinction. Now the righteousness of God, and since we have the phrase through Jesus Christ, means that it is the imputed righteousness that Christ is providing to the sinner. It is obtained by us through faith in Christ. And when it says, for there is no distinction, what that means is that, that means it's not different for the Jew, and it's not different for the Gentile, or we can say, it's not different for everyone on my left hand, or for anyone on my right hand. It's another way of saying, there is no distinction between any human being on this planet. There is no distinction between those who believe in Christ or those who do not believe in Christ. And what do I mean by that? That means that the law is the law, and in that covenant, the old covenant, between Adam or Moses to us who are in that, we are condemned. That covenant does nothing but condemn you. It can never provide life to us. So, there is no distinction. Because in the next verse, we're going to say, we're going to say this, there is no distinction for, the reason is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is the reason. For both Jew and Gentile, everyone, both believer and unbeliever, they fall short of the glory of God. But to make up, that is, to, to remedy the problem of the believer, righteousness is imputed to them. And God receives glory. Let's go on now to verse number 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now the meaning of the word justified, this is one place where it actually just says outright, we are justified by his grace. That means we have been proven to be innocent of all charges. And how is that true? Because Christ provides that innocence to us. It's imputed to us. Remember when you read the Apocalypse, how the saints stand before the throne wearing robes of righteousness. Robes are something you put on. You put on to cover you. The saints of God wear the righteousness of Christ. They are tailor-made to us. They are given to us by a brother, by someone else, who has our flesh and blood, and he and he is, uh, uh, we are descended from him spiritually, because he begat us of his own will, and by his own love and relationship. The seed of the Father being put into the into the into the church, Christ being the husband, the church being the wife, and that seed produces life. Now, we can see the image in the shadows in marriage, can't we? It's an obvious thing. I don't have to spell it out, do I? Does anyone here not understand the biology of it? But the idea behind that image is this, is that the Word is the seed. And that's how God has loved His church, by putting the seed of the Word into the heart, creating life in them because of the belief of the truth that helps the heart, that helps the sanctifying, the setting aside, the making them holy by giving them love for the Holy God. And how do we know He's holy? Because we know His law. We see His law. We walk in the light of His law. We walk in the light of the countenance of who He is and how He's been revealed in the law of God and the prophets of God.
because these things have shown us from faith to faith, the law and the prophets. And so the gospel is not going to remove the law, break the law, uh, undo the law. It only completes the law in that covenant. And then that covenant is folded up and put away because there is an everlasting covenant that we are now in since we are in Jesus Christ. So, verse number 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be revealed by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now there's a big word in here, propitiation. You don't have to be afraid of it. It just means this, that God has received what Christ has done to make him no longer angry at us. Okay? Propitiation. It's an offering that Christ did, an atonement, a work of atonement, where God before was angry and full of wrath against those who are who had hearts of depravity, hearts of sin, that hated his uh, who he was, hated his law hated the light, hated everything about God. But what Christ did on the cross, and when we are in Christ, that took away the anger. And that was an offering of propitiation. It accomplished that. And we can receive that benefit, not by earning it, but by receiving it. And the, and the analogy or the metaphor is this. If I put out my hand and you give me a gift and you place that gift in my hand, then I can grasp it and I can own it. Faith is that hand. Believing is that hand. Because we cannot earn it, therefore we cannot offer something that we have. We can only hold on to what Christ has had. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is what the poet has said. And so, we receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So when you see this phrase, God's righteousness, it is the righteousness earned by Christ. Not a man's righteousness. Even though, as a man, he earned the righteousness that we needed, which was a man's righteousness. And how can that be? Because he is God and man. He made the tailor-made suit for you. That fits you. Not angels. Not any other creature, but for you. You and you alone. And so God's righteousness. Now we also read here that because in his divine forbearance that he had passed over the former sins. Don't let that confuse you. Before the knowledge of the gospel was made, and many times in the scriptures it calls it to the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, how that Christ bore our sins, how that he is the one that justifies many, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, that before that was made known to man, God forbore, or that he's had forbearance and was patient and was tolerant and endured that. He endured, and that faith that men had in the promise to come is the same faith that blossomed even more when the knowledge became more specific. When the knowledge says, there is no other name under heaven given whereby ye must be saved. That 
is the new completion, or shall we say the new information. And therefore God, even though he is forbearing in a lot of different ways, he did not have to forbear in this one way where Christ has not yet atoned for his, his people yet. And so that's what that refers to. Let's go to the next verse, verse number 26. To show his righteousness at this present time. In other words, at the time when Christ came, in the fullness of time, God prepared Christ to die for our sins and to live righteously for us. To show his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier that he might be just and justified of those who believe in Jesus Christ. So, let's make this clear. Remember when you read the phrase, his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Don't you think, well, that just means the law. Sometimes it does not mean just the law. It means the righteousness that we need, that only a Savior can provide, that God has produced by the atoning work of Christ. And God remains just. God remains completely pure and holy in this. Because I want to stress this point. A sinner cannot make excuses for himself. A sinner can do nothing but repent. That's what a sinner is required to do. He cannot stand before God and say, well, I have good reason. There is no good reason to sin. Just look at the words. Just think about them. A good reason to sin? A holy and upright reason to sin? Should a sinner stand before God and accuse the Holy One of being that ignorant of what is right? Because a man that defends himself before God without Christ, a man that defends himself, is committing more sin. He is compounding his sin. The only thing a sinner can do is to say, I deserve hell. That's the only truthful thing he can say. That's the only way he can approach God in all humility. However, there is good news for that man who has need of Christ, who has a need of the Savior. And what is that good news? Because God is just, he is holy, and he is right, but he is also a justifier of the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Now let's keep this straight in our minds, that justification is a legal act but there's also uh, things of the heart. Justification, sanctification. I call these the two pillars of salvation. If salvation was a house and it was supported, it would have these two pillars. At least these two pillars. At the very least. Justification and sanctification. We are not infused or injected with goodness. Now, people teach that. The Roman Catholics teach that. That the Holy Spirit comes in and he puts this goodness in you and this and that. It doesn't work like that. Because when God judges you, it is a matter of legal declaration by looking at what's been imputed to you from Christ. This is a legal standing. And you have to think about it that way. Why? Because your heart needs to be convinced by your reason. Now, why would I say something like that? Because it is the power of the gospel, the truth, that the Holy Spirit uses to provide life in you. And therefore, allow the work of the Holy Spirit to trust 
in the truth. And what is the truth? God has legally made you innocent by the work of Christ and imputing his righteousness to you. So, this means that this covenant is done and put away. It's done. But sometimes when people hear that, they say, I am no longer under the law. And then what do they do with that? I'm free from the law. Oh boy, I can do anything I want. Well, who do you think has suggested in his mind that they can live in sin because they can do anything they want? Because the law of God isn't obliterated by the fact that Christ kept the covenant and kept the law. It just means that you are not legally going to be killed by that covenant. Because the covenant is using the law of God and its strength is the law of God. And if you are a sinner, that strength will condemn you forever in hell. But that covenant has been completed by Christ, done by Christ, and superseded by an everlasting covenant that imputes his righteousness to you. Now, remember, a legal transaction, that's justification. And the events that Holy Spirit does to your heart that enables you to have a heart that feels guilty when convicted by the knowledge of this legal transaction and convicts you that you may say, I love, I hate. Love what? Hate what? The knowledge that it is using, the gospel. So God has said it this way. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be like snow. So let us reason together. Use your heart, use your mind so that the facts can convince this evil heart. And that the law that is now written upon the heart, and that means this. It's not that, oh, I, I, I memorized it by heart. No, no, no. You haven't. You haven't gotten it by heart yet unless you love it. Unless you have an affection for the law of God. Hate what God hates. Love what God loves. That's when you have it by heart. Because heart issues is a sanctifying issue where the Holy Spirit takes your heart and then you love the truth that is legally based in fact. Do you see now these two pillars working together? Christ did this for us. And I want to get into a little bit of detail where it comes to how Christ provided to us. Christ did two things when he, he obeyed this law. He obeyed the covenant. He met the conditions of the covenant. He met the conditions of a quid pro quo, of a, I, I did this, you give me that, because the covenant says this, do this and live. Okay? You do this and you live. There is that that relationship there. Christ was required to actively obey all these things. Actively obey. He did what we should have done. He did what, and he did not do what we shouldn't have done. All the things that make a perfect human life, Christ did. He did these things. He did not do certain things. He thought the right things. He loved the right things. He hated the right things. He served God with all his heart. He obeyed everything about 
what we should be, he was. He actively did this. But there is also another aspect of this, and that is he also obeyed in a passive way. And I don't mean passive in which he didn't do anything. He obeyed in a passive way where he also endured things that he did not actually have to endure. Because as a sinner, I am required as a guilty man to confess and to say, I deserve hell. Christ did not deserve hell. But he was willing, actively being submissive to God and passively obeyed that requirement for us because he endured punishment, being, being accused of things he did not do. And he was punished and he received punishment. Not that he should have, we should have. And that's why it's his passive obedience. And so the work of Christ on the cross is called a passive obedience for Christ, but it's called something that we really need. We needed to be that man that said, I am not worthy to be called your servant, and I should not be here before you. I deserve to be in hell. This is my rightful place. And Christ did that for us, even that. Even that he did what was, what was required by us. But he was no sinner. But he did not open his mouth, did he? He did not defend himself. And neither should we. We should take nothing in our hands, simply cling to the cross of Christ. Now I have one practical application for fun. Oh no, we got it. See, I'm used to preaching where I, 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 was, I was really going for 15 more minutes. Sorry. All right. Um, you get no practical application this morning. Sorry about that, but I'll just say this. Just in closing. In Romans, 6, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. People misuse this all the time. They misuse it all the time. They read this phrase, you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, but I want you to read it with what I've just told you in mind. You are not under a covenant that says you have to obey to receive life. You're not under that. But to think that you do not have the law of God in your life, the law of God has been written in our hearts. Why should we abandon that which enables us to walk and serve God? You may have friends and neighbors and loved ones who say, well, so-and-so, they, they accepted the Lord as their Savior, but they didn't accept Him as Lord. You know, one day they'll do that. That's like saying this. Um, they let Christ die for their sins, but they don't want to be holy people. <laughs> they don't want to walk with God. You know, like, what do you think salvation is, folks? It's being saved from your sins so that you can walk with God. Amen. Do you see the difference there? And so I've just condensed three pages of application into one sentence. You're welcome. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your kindness and for your grace. And we pray, Lord, that these things will be done to uplift and glorify Christ. Be with your people now. Embrace them by your love. Enable us to walk before you in holiness. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.